Welcome to the DTB podcast for July 2023, volume 61, number seven. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about the content of the July issue of DTB. But before we discuss the articles, James, there's an HRT issue that you want to talk about? Yes, I think this is an important issue that's sort of been raised in our pharmacy and practice. I thought it'd be quite important to cover. It's it's about the serious shortage protocol, SSP056, which is the protocol the government's introduced to reduce, or if you like, to somehow ration the availability of Utragestan because of the problems with its availability. And the idea behind it is that pharmacists only dispense a maximum of two packs of Utragestan against a script for more. Uh, and the idea behind it is that by rationing it, you make sure that women can get hold of their HRT. And uh, we've sort of picked up a couple of issues which have really concerned us. And I just wonder whether this is something which other pharmacists and GPs are aware of. Um, and my issue with this is that if you have a woman that walks into a pharmacy or goes to pick up their repeat prescription of HRT and they've got their three months of estrogen, but only get two months of their progesterone, what happens next? They're going to have to go back to their doctor to get the third month of their progesterone at some point. Because my understanding of the SSP056 is that script is then complete. You don't go back for the, the third or the fourth, whatever many more months you might have had on it. That's completed. I may be wrong, but that's my understanding of it. So every single woman on Utragestan is going to get two months and have to come back to their doctor to get more. And it's also going to mean that it's now out of sync because they're going to get perhaps three months more of Utragestan then or two months more if the shortage is still going on. And so they'll be out of kilter with their estrogen. And I think that disconnect between their estrogen dose and their progesterone dose is a worry for me. It also concerns me that um, if there isn't an availability of their normal progesterone when they go back, they're going to have a new different one, an alternative given to them, which will be different from their standard one. And then do you give them just a month to tide them over or do you give them more months? And the whole thing, I think, is going to be so complicated for women to deal with. And I, I just really worry about the safety issues with this. I think women might end up missing a week or two of their progesterone whilst they're waiting for an alternative. And I, I feel it'd be much better for women to have got on a first come first basis, uh, you know, their normal prescription. And if there was no utragestan in the building, then you go back to your doctor. Because the, currently the way it works is every woman on HRT is gonna come back to see a GP for an alternative for that month that they don't get. The other thing that will really upset women is that the NHS HRT PPC, their prescription payment certificate for HRT, only covers one other progesterone and that's Climanor, which is medroxyprogesterone. And that I gather is not available either. So any alternative we give them as GPs, they're gonna to have to pay for. So it's a real mess, but I, my concern is more that it, what it does for perhaps for women is it disconnects their estrogen from their progesterone. And I think it's really important that GPs and pharmacists when involved in this whole area really reiterate the importance that they have regular progesterone to maintain their lining of their womb in a sort of quiescent state 
And if they don't do that, they're at risk of, at best, chaotic bleeding perhaps, but at worst, possibly even endometrial cancer. And I just think that, um, I just think this probably wasn't thought through. I can understand from a sort of availability stroke rationing point of view why you might have this this serious shortage protocol but the concept of only giving two packs and disconnecting it from the estrogen is a mistake and i suppose at this stage we don't know how long the shortage is likely to be no i mean uh, from the websites from the government website they talk about availability possibly until the end of 2023 so we could still have six months worth so there could be women who this happens three times to over the course of the next six months so has anyone issued any formal advice about what to do in this situation? Well, we've got bodies advising us what the alternatives are and, and how you can you know, prescribe alternatives off-label. But I think for me, what, what is really necessary is, is to really highlight to women that if you only get two months of progesterone with your HRT, it's really important that you've got something for that third month if you get three months of estrogen or if you've got six months of estrogen, it's even, you know, then it's really important that you work out what progesterone you're gonna have for the remainder of that period. And it's about making sure that we link estrogen and progesterone inextricably. So there's no gaps which could create problems for women in their health. And of course, the only other way to do that would be, as you say, follow the advice of, of some of the other bodies and change somebody completely to a different product. But but then, then you, you're, well, both introducing extra workload for everybody and, um, in danger of upsetting somebody's stable regime. Exactly, and we know that um, you know progesterones all have their own foibles when it comes to their side effects. And as I said earlier, you know you're going to have to pay for it then, um, which is going to upset people who've paid for their prepayment certificate. Uh, so it, it is a difficult situation, and I just don't think we've quite thought it through because I say if if we'd gone on a first come first served basis at least some women wouldn't have to go back to their GP the way they've done it is everyone on Utragestan is going to have to go back to see their GP and that's a huge amount of extra workload okay so tricky one so if anyone's got any solutions um do it too yeah I'll just I'll just be interested to know whether this is just me barking on again or whether there's actually you know it, it is something that other people have have experienced and whether you know there is any evidence that women are going without or actually you know has there been an increased instance of patients having to be referred to secondary care because of abnormal bleeding whilst they're on HRT um, because I think that's going to be one of the things that you might see over the coming months as people perhaps can't get the progesterone they need. Okay so um any, any solutions, then email us at uh, dtb at bmg.com um, and you'll be happy with any any suggestions. Yeah, it'd just be interesting, won't it, to see if there are some... I mean, yes, yes, he says. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, <laughs> let's leave it there and let's see, what, see whether yeah. anyone's encountered this or has got a rational solution. Um, okay, thank you very much. Um, let's begin our look at the July issue with the editorial. Uh, this one's written by David Erskine and John Minchell from Guys and Thomas's Medicine's information team. And what's it about? So uh, this is interesting. It's a sort of review of where we are with evidence-based medicine. And I think it, it's a fascinating insight into sort of the maturing landscape of evidence-based medicine and how initially you know in the 1980s and 90s 
Um, there were some real pioneers really pushing to make sure that medicine was evidence-based. And certainly I remember when I was training, the concept of the evidence supporting your treatment was not something you even thought about. You were just told from textbooks that when you have this problem, you treat it with this. Um, and, you know, so we've moved on to this evidence base and we had things like the Cochrane Library, uh, the National Electronic Library for Health, some really big independent bodies creating some some really good information for clinicians to use. And I think what David Erskine and colleague are sort of pointing out is that things have shifted really. And now what we're looking at is increasingly a sort of broken system, if you like, with many of these these good resources, particularly independent ones, have either ceased to exist or they've narrowed their remit. That, you know, even the randomized control trial, which we all think of as the gold standard, is is actually um, increasingly being challenged and we're moving towards the concept of real world evidence and big data. And, and we're not yet sure how that works. And also just, just the fact that we all expect everything to be bite-sized now and this concept that actually, you know, a single sort of tweet, if you like, on a drug explains everything you need to know about it. And and we all know that, that therapeutics is, is far more complicated than that. Um, and it's really important that we understand the uncertainties and the, the nuances of evidence which often are not there on simple very short bite-sized information streams and it struck me when i read the editorial that it was this loss of access to evidence that is quite significant now is that because the assumption is that everyone has access to guidelines guidelines tell you what to do but they don't necessarily give you the detail behind them to see that you know what you're doing or why you're doing it and it's that loss of the ability to easily find a bit of underpinning evidence that, that seems quite concerning yes i think that's right i i suppose i think it's because i don't know i, I don't know enough about the funding of a lot of these really big organizations as they developed i think there was a real enthusiasm and groundswell of, of hang hang on a minute you know really does this drug work you know i remember reading about warfarin and discovering that trial that supports the use of warfarin for the treatment of dvts involved just 30 patients and that's the only study that's ever been done now of course you could say well it's the journal of the blindingly obvious that warfarin works but i just you know that it's fascinating when you discover what the evidence is and it's also i find as as we've i'm sure we've talked about this countless times before very often it's when you go back to the the original evidence and look at the trial participants look at their you know ages or their sex or you know their their backgrounds that can have a huge impact on the outcome of a study and that can be really important for you as a clinician work with a patient in front of you so i think um you're right. Guidelines have sort of become de rigueur now, and they're the things people look at. But guidelines don't really offer you the nuances. They don't offer you the, the the little bits that actually can be really informative. And I think, as perhaps we're going to discuss, um, and on another day, because I'm in the middle of thinking about this for an article, I think guidelines themselves now are beginning to lose their way a little bit. Um, and we need to think about how they are created and how they look at the evidence and where that comes from. And, and the other main issue that, that we've talked about before, we mentioned it during uh, COVID, is this reliance on kind of press releases, 
social media and newspaper headlines to convey one-off messages which hide all the nuance and detail that actually you need to, to make a decision on whether something is a, is a rational choice or not a rational choice and and that seems again to be the key uh, move at the moment that everything has to be 140 characters or less and that isn't the space for you know longer pieces um, which seems again a, a shame for those who want to read a bit more about evidence and, and what it means you're, you're totally right um if you know but the good news i think patients recognize that these groundbreaking drugs that they can constantly hear about are very rarely the case um uh, but you're right i think the trouble with it is it's become an incredibly commercialized area now i think everyone clocks this is all about the commercial bit now um and i think that's i think that's the fascinating bit of this so commercial interests are front and centre to what goes on now in guidance, in licensing, in um, NICE, determining whether a drug is used or not in the NHS. It's all commercial, commercial, commercial. And that, I think, is destroying the ability for us to find the good evidence that we need um, when we come to prescribing drugs for patients. And, and what it left me thinking is clearly there's a challenge and a role for you know, organisations who summarise the evidence or present it in a way that's accessible is explaining some of these new developments and once we get further into the field of real world evidence and what that means you know we will have to respond to that won't we it should become a challenge for dtb to to help explain what the evidence actually means and how reliable that type of evidence actually is totally i went to a meeting recently really intelligent doctor giving some really good information but totally throughout using relative risk and I just kept thinking, well, what does that mean? You know, 23% increase in this and a 14% reduction in that. Doesn't mean a thing unless you know what the underlying issue is. But people seem to accept it. Oh, that's interesting. We, we ought to do something about that then if it's that much percentage, whatever. Well, you can't tell whether it's worth doing something about it given a relative risk unless you know what the underlying risk is. Um, so yes, it's something we just got to keep banging the drum for and... I just hope that the dust will settle on this sort of push, this commercial push, and we'll actually get back to having some good, no conflict of interest evidence that we can use. Well, we'll watch this space and we'll see if that, that happens. Um, and we'll come on to that theme of conflict of interest in a second. Let's just dive into one of the select items that we've published this month, uh, which is an important safety announcement from the MHRA on prescribing isotretinoin for acne and some of the things that are going to change in the near future. So what, what have they pointed out and what are they concerned about? Yeah, so isotretinoin or Roaccutane, as perhaps people know it, as the MHRA just going to issue some new safety measures in the coming months, really because of concerns around um, perhaps some harmful psychiatric and uh, sexual effects associated with it just associated the the expert working group which summarized the findings um, concluded that the data was not sufficient to establish a causal association between some acute and long-term psychiatric and sexual adverse effects but actually that an association couldn't be ruled out so this is more just better safe than sorry i think and there seemed to be a, a particular focus on those sort of 12 to 18 years and you're going to have to have two prescribers 
agreeing that this was an appropriate treatment. Now, of course, a lot of this prescribing at the moment goes on in secondary care and specialist services, uh, but they did talk about possible extra involvement for GPs um, with extended roles. Now, is that something that happens in your area at the moment or is it or is it all secondary care based? No, I think, yes, it's, I mean, it's a good point, isn't it? I mean, at one point it feels as if they're tightening the, the strings around this and the next minute they're saying let's loosen them a bit here. But I think um, there is talk and I think certainly I'm aware of one a very experienced GP who's done a great deal of dermatology who does prescribe within um obviously within the dermatology department but i think there's also talk about setting up a registry i think which obviously would be useful so i think this is just an interesting issue as you say i think the big issue is between this 12 to 18 year olds and the particular concern uh, amongst teenagers and, and the concern about depression and psychotic symptoms in this group um, I think it's a difficult one because we know how incredibly undermining bad acne can be for for anyone, but particularly this this age group who are obviously often have uh, issues with self esteem anyway. So I think there is obviously, I think in many respects it may well be that just this group of patients as a whole, given that they've probably tried a number of different treatments, they haven't worked, they've got severe acne, um, they probably need more support anyway so this is something to be welcomed i think and if it just highlights to primary care and secondary care that this is a particular group of vulnerable patients that will be a good thing okay thank you very much um and then the second item um which returns to our conflict of interest debate a bit earlier uh, is a summary of a paper that looked at um declared conflicts of interest declarations from authors of clinical guidelines and came up with some interesting findings um what what again what did it show yeah this uh, this was this was fascinating study so um in the usa there's something called the open payments database and it's a legal requirement for pharmaceutical and medical device manufacturers in the us to report details of any payments they make to teaching hospitals or US licensed healthcare professionals. So that includes all physicians, physicians assistants and nurses, and this is obligatory. And what this study did was they looked at guidelines issued in the US in 2020. And then from those 20 guidelines, they looked at the conflicts of interests that were announced by, I think it was about 270 guideline authors um, and you know basically did their conflict of interest declaration their financial conflict of interest declaration match what was on the US open payments database and the numbers and as you might imagine <laughs> as you might imagine uh, I think that 74 percent of authors had received payment from the industry and amongst the 22 panel chairs, seven declared financial conflicts of interest. Um, so 18 had financial conflicts of interest, but hadn't disclosed them accurately. And under the, I think under the authors, there were 72 authors that had disclosed financial interests accurately, but 101 had disclosed no conflict of interest but had received payments and we're not talking about small sums of money here i was gobsmacked um we're talking about range of money received 
between a thousand or so US dollars to $254,000. I mean, crikey, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it's, I'm always flabbergasted when I look at the scale of payments that are declared in that yeah. database. I mean, some of them, let's be fair, some of them, they divide them into those that are research focused. So they're those that you've people have been part of because they've done some research. And then there are the others, which are kind of the personal payments, the mm. entertainment, the trips away, the consultancy fees. So there, there is a, a split between them. But it is, because I think the total value of payments associated with all those authors was about 100 million. Um, yeah. And 24 yeah. million of that was undisclosed. So 25% you know, of, of, of payments w weren't, weren't declared and only... Again, I think it was something like 25% of the authors accurately declared yeah. um, conflicts of interest. And again, it's how do you eradicate this problem from, from medicine? Um, and, and what solutions have, have we got? I mean, it's great they've got the database because you, you wouldn't be able to do that piece of research here or in Europe because we don't have, we don't have that mandatory database. No, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there is a sort of, I can't remember what it's called, but the ABPI have a database, don't they? Disclosure which? UK. Disclosure, that's it. And you can go on there and and look to see if there's any information about um, a medical professional and, and funding they've received. But that, that's just uh, purely... You can opt um, out. You can, you can opt out yeah. of having your data on there. So, I mean, it may well be fairly comprehensive, but of course, we don't know. Um, no. And that's, that's the downside, that because we don't know how... how um, comprehensive the coverage is it's difficult to know whether you found everything or or, or not um, and even you know we are lucky in this country that's better than, than most of the European databases but it isn't comprehensive yeah so yeah so which, which, as I said earlier you know this is this is the issue we have where do you go for for your information when you know, there's possible bias even amongst the big national guidelines okay I think this is a topic we're going to keep going back to because we've seen it affecting things we've done over, over the years. So I suspect we'll be back and having another look at again sometime in the future. Um, mm. So let's just move on to our, our main article. This one is a, a review of the cardio-renal effects of SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, quick overview, what do we cover? Yeah, I hadn't realised, you know, SGL2 inhibitors, or I tend to call them flozins, have been around now for about 10 years. Um, and obviously, they were first licensed for type 2 diabetes. And what's happened since that is that a lot of evidence has shown that they also have significant benefits for cardiac and renal outcomes. And this is a nice review of that evidence, basically. Um, so we look at the DAPA CKD trials, we look at the Empora trials, which were empagliflozins. We look at the, the, the Credence studies as well, which was supporting canagliflozin. So basically looking at these and looking at the impact of these drugs now on um, CKD. And of course, now NICE recommends that we use DAPA glyphosate in patients with CKD with either type 2 diabetes or with proteinuria. So that's now part of the armamentarium that we use to manage CKD. And then we also have the benefits for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, where NICE recommends that we consider them in patients with that. Interesting enough, obviously, in the US and in European guidance, SGLT2 inhibitors are actually considered um, 
first line now in the management of heart failure, not just as sort of an add-on. So really interesting. And it just reminds us about the evidence behind that um, and also the possible adverse effects, safety issues that you can get with them. What's particularly helpful is that it, it also helpfully set out the kind of scale of the evidence um, and, and the useful numbers of, of how good these are. And again, the tricky thing I think still is that a lot of the outcomes were composite outcomes so it's difficult to quite understand what they're telling you um so there might be a combination of i don't know reduction in egfr end-stage renal disease and death from renal cardiovascular causes um which is quite hard to explain to, to people if you want to actually say what the actual absolute benefits are but nevertheless yeah you know, the, they do reduce those events so yeah so you've i mean that's absolutely right so that that's the dapa ckd trial looked at exactly those composite endpoints as you say a 50 percent reduction in renal function or end-stage renal failure or death and it was about four thousand patients and after i think it was 2.4 years nine percent of the dapa group had developed that Sec that composite outcome versus 14.5% who were on controls. So that's about a 6% absolute risk reduction. It's a 40% or so relative risk reduction or a number needed to treat of about 19. But as you say, the difficulty with that is it's being composite, you know, it, it, it's, it's not as easy to really get an idea of what that's all about. Um, but but as you say, all the evidence is there. It's nicely laid out, um, and it is useful to have it all in one place and remind ourselves now, really how far we've come with the SGLT two inhibitors. Um, they've really become sort of the twenty first century equivalent of ACE inhibitors, I suppose, in their their range now and in their importance in the management of some quite significant issues. And the, the, just I suppose the last point to make is that the article also points out that those that have got a license. For these extended uses and those those that haven't um yeah so it's worth again worth checking but uh, yes very very helpful summary I, I would say so yes okay thank you very much um you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com uh, all our previous podcasts are also available on our website just click the podcast button at the top of the homepage. Uh, if you've got any suggestions or comments on our content on our articles or our editorials or even on our podcasts uh, please email us at dtb at pmj.com and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the august 23 podcast thank you for listening <laughs>